the name Manasseh in Hebrew comes from the root that means to forget. And so you could quite literally say that King Manasseh is king forgetful. As we look at this narrative, we see the wheels really come off in Judah under king forgetful. He clearly forgets the Lord. And that forgetfulness, that spiritual amnesia, led to the worst of times. It led to disaster. You know, my friend uh, John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress Part 2, the lesser known of the two uh, works that he did, Pilgrim's Progress Part 2, which is the story of Christiana, Christian's wife, and how, he, how she comes to faith. But uh, in The Pilgrim's Progress Part 2, he writes about this place called Forgetful Green. Forgetful Green. And he said this, he said, For if at any time pilgrims meet with any trials, it is when they forget what favors they have received. Basically saying there's a constant temptation there to veer off into forgetful green and to forget who God is and what God has done. The fact is, when we forget the Lord, we are in trouble. I wonder this morning, have you forgotten the Lord? Are there areas of your life where God is not in the equation? He doesn't factor into your thinking about this or that. The great danger of spiritual amnesia is the destruction that results from it. And so this morning we're going to look at this train wreck that is uh, King Manasseh's reign. But as we look at it, we have to remember that God has blessed us with this passage so that we can be warned, so that we can learn and grow, and so that we can truly keep him first and foremost in our minds on a daily basis. Now, when we start to unpack it, we realize, again, the, there's a great cost that comes in forgetting the Lord. And King Forgetful shows us that. Watch verse 1 again as we get into here, chapter 21. Again, Manasseh, which means to forget. He was 12 years old when he became king. Of course, he's the son of Hezekiah, who was a very good king in general. Um, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Really long reign for King Forgetful. And, of course, his mother's name was Hephzibah. So uh, any of you expecting uh, daughters soon, keep that one in your back pocket, all right? So it's tough to pronounce, but it's a beautiful name. Verse 2, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. We're back to this again. The familiar refrain, right? It gets worse, though. Imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. We've, we've heard this uh, as well in First and Second Kings, that the kings that did evil in the Lord's sight often or maybe always were following the spiritual example of the nations around them. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They were influenced by the nations around them, or in this case, the nations that lived in the land before God gave it to Israel. Those were Canaanite pagan nations, and yet they did not come into the land and just worship the Lord. They adopted these Canaanite gods and goddesses. And so even though Hezekiah led the people away from that, his son Manasseh, king forgetful, had forgotten. And we're right back to the same thing of imitating the nations. Verse 3, he, he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed and reestablished the altars for Baal. So he's undoing the good work that his father Hezekiah had done. We waited so long for those high places to get torn down. They finally are torn down and the next generation puts them right back up. King forgetful. We've got altars for Baal rebuilt. 
He, he made an Asherah. Remember, Asherah is this Canaanite goddess, and they would worship her using this like totem pole thing. And so either they built a, 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 an actual idol of Asherah or one of these totem pole things. But nonetheless, he made an Asherah just like King Ahab of Israel, just as King Ahab of Israel had done. Now, just in case you've forgotten, King Ahab is not a good example either. And so here, the, the king of the southern kingdom has now followed this footsteps of one of the worst, if not the worst, kings of the northern kingdom. He also, verse 3, bowed and worshipped all the stars in the sky and served them. As if the Canaanite gods and goddesses weren't enough, now we're getting back into astrology and worshipping the stars, and the stars are the gods, and they dictate our future. It's shockingly, it gets even worse. Verse 4, he built altars in the Lord's temple, in Yahweh's temple, where the Lord had said, Jerusalem is where I will put my name. So in the actual temple devoted to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's supposed to be exclusively for the worship of Yahweh, what has Manasseh done? King Forgetful has gone into the temple and he said, this needs to be updated and let's build some altars here to some of these other gods as well. And so now in the temple where it's only the Lord's name that is supposed to be, now they've got these other gods and goddesses present there for worship in their altars. He didn't stop with just the gods, though. There, same thing in the temple. He built altars to all the stars in the sky in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. Now it became an astrology center. And really here at the very bottom of the barrel, he sacrificed his son, in verse 6, to the fire. Practiced witchcraft and divination. Consulted mediums and spiritists. He did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him. You know, the other nations, they would sacrifice their children, their firstborn, to God, especially the kings. And Manasseh thought here, he thought, if I'm going to be successful as a king, if we're going to be successful as a nation, if I'm going to be successful as a leader... I have to give my son over to this Canaanite god. And so he, he has his son murdered. He consulted with the spiritists and the, the, the witches. And, you know, he's going and trying to figure out, tell me the signs of the future. And they're reading, you know, they read signs out of animal entrails and other really pleasant things like that to try to tell him what's going to happen and what he should do and all of this. See, King Forgetful has forgotten the resource he has in the Lord. Of course, that's prohibited in Deuteronomy. It's interesting the way they word it at the end of verse 6. He did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight. Manasseh's is as bad as it's gotten in the southern kingdom, for sure. In verse 7, the authors kind of circle back to this issue of the temple. Watch verse 7. Manasseh set up carved, the carved image of Asherah, which he had made in the temple that the Lord had spoken about to David and his son Solomon. What did he say? I will establish my name forever in this temple and in, in, in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. I will never again cause the feet of the Israelites to wander from the land I gave to their ancestors, if only they will be careful to do all I have commanded them, the whole law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. Manasseh caused them to stray so that they did worse evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Again, we're getting a very sober picture here of what the cost of forgetfulness is, where spiritual amnesia leads. So King Forgetful has set up all these false uh, altars. He's worshipped the false gods, worshipping the stars, facilitated that in the temple. 
And especially with regard to the temple, it's just that one is extra, you know, harsh or extra painful because that's where God alone is supposed to be worshipped. And it's tied to these promises that God had made to his people where he's promised to them, I will give you the land and I won't send you out of it if you will be careful to listen to me, to follow me, to obey my commands. And yet Manasseh led the people in doing the exact opposite of that. And so there's a, a grim foreshadowing here that this is the beginning of the end for the southern kingdom. And just like the northern kingdom, they are headed for exile, to be removed from the land. The cause of all this is the fact in verse 9 that they would not listen to the Lord. What does that mean, they would not listen? They wouldn't humble themselves under the word of God. They wouldn't agree with God and respond to God's commands by faith. Here's the reality. When we forget God, we will replace him with others. When we forget God, we will replace him with something or someone else. So we, when we forget God, we'll replace him with others. Other gods? Sure. Other people? Sometimes. When we talk about worship, we're talking about what do we value most? What has the, the highest level of passion and devotion in our hearts? And when it's not God, we have a problem. We have forgotten who God is. We have forgotten what he's done for us. And so King Forgetful leads the nation in doing just that, in putting other gods and other things in that spot of being most important. And so when we forget God, that's what we'll do. We'll replace him with something else. We'll put money in that slot or family or, uh, you know, nationalism or career or pleasure or whatever it is. And we'll put all these other things in that spot and say, that's what's most important. That's what matters most. But man, that road, it leads to destruction. There are a couple of specific lessons we get, especially out of just Manasseh's train wreck uh, in leading the nation spiritually. The first is, and this is really, I think, the, the primary focus of these first nine verses, is that worshiping God means worshiping God alone. Like not God and money, or God and Baal, or God and career, or God and grades, or God and entertainment. It's just God. He has to have that sole spot. So that's where the temple helps us this morning. The temple was a picture of that. God said, I will put my name there at this particular chunk of real estate and you will worship me only there. And so that was the theory that the people would come to worship God there and worship him above all else. And instead of honoring that, what Manasseh led the people to do was they put other gods there and goddesses. You know, in some of the literature, it, it, we get these hints that they thought Asherah was like Yahweh's wife. So they had this kind of weird kind of Canaanite family deity kind of, you know, dynamic going on. And all that's not, according to God's word, it's not the reality of the situation. But nonetheless, they would go to the temple and they could worship Asherah as well and throw some Baal in there and throw some other Canaanite gods or goddesses in there. You see, it wasn't exclusive worship of God. Don't you know that when we forget God, we substitute or we add to our lives others? There's a warning here for us because you can show up at a Christian church, even a church where the gospel is proclaimed clearly. You can show up at that church, but you can walk out of that church and say, yeah, I worship Jesus and worship something else and worship something else and have all kinds of gods in your life. But we learn from King Forgetful that worshiping God means worshiping God alone, where he alone has the priority. He determines how we think about all those other areas of our life. So worshiping God means worshiping God alone. Secondly here, we get the clear picture just kind of in the run of 2 Kings that idolatry and worldliness, wanting to be like the nations, it's never safe. It's never harmless. 
And that's one of the lies that we get fed. You know, it's, I don't know what Manasseh thought. Maybe he just thought, you know what, it's really not that big of a deal if we throw another altar up here. It's really not that big of a deal if I make a compromise here. It's really not that big of a deal if I'm doing this on Friday night like everybody else. And if I, it really is not that big of a deal if, I, if I'm watching this or if I, I think like this or if I do this on my taxes or I do this at work, right? And it's not that big of a deal. But all of a sudden we realize, wait a minute, that worldliness, when we, when we follow the example of the nations around us, right, when we follow them into idolatry and sin, it's never safe. It, it's never harmless. And Manasseh did a huge amount of evil. And it was worse than the nations that were there before Israel. That's how bad it had gotten. There's a caution here, a warning to us. Which leads to the third, I think, lesson in this first chunk, which is that the battle with idolatry, it's not a skirmish. It's all-out war. And it's war on multiple fronts. You know, again, we just, uh, in our culture, we just don't take sin seriously enough. It's not that big of a deal. We're not overly concerned about it. But if you read the cumulative effect of First and Second Kings, we get to Manasseh, and we're just seeing everything implode in the southern kingdom. We're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is all because of the worship problem. And the fact is that if we are not serious about keeping God alone in the primary place of worship in our lives, we're in trouble. Idolatry is stubborn. Because you'd think, oh, the nations were driven out. Oh, and you'd think, oh, God blessed the people and God rescued them from the Assyrians with Hezekiah, Manasseh's father. So they will have learned. They will have seen God's faithfulness on display. Literally, some of them saw that in the previous generation. And they lived through for King Manasseh to become king. And having learned those lessons from the past, they would stay faithful to the Lord and they wouldn't worship these idols. And yet, man, idolatry, it's stubborn. And it was, it is all out war. And one good king, right, good though Hezekiah was, right, couldn't undo this, uh, this inertia of the generation to follow the example of the nations and to worship false gods. King Hezekiah was a good king, but man, that battle with idolatry wasn't a one-time battle. It is war. And again, war on multiple fronts. Some of us are, are kind of have been made aware of that in our own lives because as we have grown as believers, we've seen how sin impacts the way we think over here and over here and over there. It, it expresses itself in different areas in our lives. Don't be naive and think, oh yeah, now that I'm a follower of Jesus, it's going to be easy to say no to temptation. Now listen, this is war. This is spiritual war. And God has made provision for us, but there's a warning here about the persistent nature of idolatry Finally, the fourth thing we learn in these first few verses is that failure to listen to God is the root cause of it all. At the end of the day, if you go back to the garden with Adam and Eve, when the serpent's whispering to Eve, and maybe she's discussing it with Adam, we don't know all the details there, but as that's happening, what they should have said was, but God has said this. They should have listened to the Lord. Meaning, God's voice should have been the primary voice helping them interpret what was going on in their lives. And they should have let God's word drive their response to the temptation. But they didn't. And it's been the same story ever since. Where there are a lot of voices in our lives. Our own voice and others' voices. And all the while, God has spoken and we find out the problem in verse 9 is they did not listen to the Lord. 
it wasn't as if God hadn't communicated with them clearly. He kept sending prophet after prophet after prophet to bring his word to his people, to call them to repent, to call them to trust him and to follow him. But they were thinking, this is what I think about it, or this is what Oprah says about it, or this is what so-and-so says about it, right? And they're just following the lead of the culture, following their own desires and not humbling, not humbling themselves and accepting the word of God as the authority. Because it's God's word, that's why. Because God is the authority. Again, worshiping God alone here is connected to then listening to God. If we, prim- if we have God in the primary spot in our hearts, when God speaks, it's his word that matters most. But we struggle, don't we? This, this circumstance, what we're reading about with Manasseh, it cannot last. God cannot and he will not allow his people to persist in that idolatry. And even his judgment in this case is a part of his rescue, where he is going to rescue his people from it. Watch verse 10. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Since king forgetful of Judah has committed all these detestable acts, worse evil than the Amorites who preceded him had done, and by means of his idols has also caused Judah to sin, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am about to bring such a disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that everyone who hears about it will shudder. This is the first time a southern king has been compared to the Amorites. Only King Ahab of the northern kingdom had that that distinction. So it's kind of like the worst of the worst, the bottom of the barrel here as far as kings go. And because of his sin, King Manasseh, and because of the people following him in that sin, the Lord says, I'm going to have to judge. And so there's going to be a disaster on Jerusalem. It's interesting. You can, it's not there in English. But when you see in verse 11, the, the worst evil that the Amorites, that word evil, it's the same word in Hebrew for disaster that's used in verse 12. It's that they have, they have chosen disaster by worshiping these false gods, even done worse, worse, a worse disaster than the Amorites did. And therefore, the Lord says, in order to rescue you from it, I'm going to have to actually send a disaster upon you. It's a hard truth. Verse 13, he goes on. He says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line used on Samaria and the mason's level used on the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem clean as one wipes a bowl, wiping it and turning it upside down. Now that's a pretty clear image, but let's just unpack it a little bit. The same judgment that befell the northern kingdom meaning they were taken into exile and conquered, that same thing is going to happen to Judah. And the picture there is of the, the pure measuring instrument, okay, the plumb line, okay, that same measuring stick of God's righteousness that will be used to measure the south, just like it was the north, and they'll be found crooked, and so they'll have to deal with it. Or that he uses the other interesting example of washing dishes. Like when you're washing dishes, you don't just wash the one side. Husbands, when you're washing dishes, you don't just wash the one side. Okay, there's a little instruction here for us, right? You flip it over and you thoroughly wash both, you know, that's, that's to get it all the way clean. And here the imagery is, Jerusalem is going to be turned upside down like that. God's going to wipe it clean. It's going to be rough. Verse 14, I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will become plunder and spoil to all their enemies. Why? Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have angered me from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until today. If you just pause at verse 15, don't think that it's just Manasseh's sin that was the problem. 
King Forgetful was a problem, but he was just the latest in a long line. In fact, it doesn't just go back to the previous kings. Here, the, the prophet said, let's go all the way back to the Exodus, when God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he was providing for them in the wilderness. And they, they were out there for two weeks, and they were making false gods. Exodus chapter 32. Aaron, Moses' brother, makes these gods for them. These are the gods that rescued you out of Egypt. No, no. And the prophets say from, from that day on, it's been a constant cycle of idolatry. And so the exile that Judah will experience and that destruction of Jerusalem, that's a consequence of their cumulative sin as a people. And that has angered the Lord. Now, Manasseh himself certainly had a big part to play in that here at the end. Verse 16, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to the other. This was in addition to his sin that he caused Judah to commit so that they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So like Jeroboam who caused Israel, the northern kingdom, to commit sin here, Manasseh causes Judah to commit sin, and he's shedding innocent blood, which is probably generally a recognition of the fact that he took advantage of the vulnerable, but also perhaps there's a focus here on the fact that he killed faithful prophets in the midst of his ministry. We get, an, we get a hint of this in Hebrews 11, verse 37, which talks about a prophet that was sawn in two, and uh, we have literature uh, from the intertestamental period that lets us know that that probably is a reference to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. So the prophet Isaiah was, was executed, and he was probably executed during the reign of Manasseh. And so maybe, not totally for sure, but maybe that's what's being alluded to by the shedding of this innocent blood in verse 16. One way or another, Manasseh, well, again, he had forgotten who God was. And that led to a train wreck, spiritually. Verse 17 and 18, the rest of the events of Manasseh's reign, along with his accomplishments and the sin that he committed, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. Manasseh rested with his ancestors and was buried in the garden of his own house, the garden of Uzzah. His son Ammon became king in his place. What's the warning here? The warning is that those who forget God will be judged by God. Those who forget God will be judged by God. There's no repentance here in the people. There's no change. They just have gone along with the idolatry. They've chosen it for themselves. And again here, in this warning, we have this reminder that our sin is a big deal. And so, and this is a part of the difficulty of coming to church, because when we come to gather with God's people, you know, we are constantly tempted to just put our best foot forward that's why some of you dress up. More of you should. But that's why some of you dress up. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, you come to, I'm teasing. All right? But th there's a temptation to like, how's it going? Oh, yeah, it's going great. Like, yeah, yeah like all that, you know, and we just, that's, that's just natural right, as people. And, um, but as a gathering of the church, really, if we're, if we're going to be effective and loving each other, we have to be willing to say, yeah, it's not really going that great, actually. Because the fact is, there, I have struggles this week that I'm struggling with. And we don't say that to everyone, but we need to say it to someone. Because if we've bought the lie that our sin isn't that big of a deal, we'll never bring it up. We'll never address it. And if that is our lifelong pattern, there's a genuine question there of, am I even a follower of Jesus? There's a twofold warning, really. To believers, there's a warning here to humble ourselves, to listen to the Lord, His voice, 
and not let others' voice or our own voice actually drive the bus. So in this warning where we see that the wheels come off with Manasseh and the people follow because they didn't listen, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, there's a warning here to say to you, listen, don't get too comfortable with your sin. And just because you really want something or just because everybody else is saying this is what you should do, you have to let God's word be the determining word. You have to let God's voice be the determining voice. Our voice is tainted, right? We don't have an infinitely wise perspective. And so even as we're going through trials and difficulties, even genuinely as we express hurt and pain and we're trying to process what's going on, at the end of the day, we have to say, I know I feel like this and I know this is what's going on in my life, but Lord, what have you said to me? What is true of you that I need to not forget right now, that I need to remember? Or you might be going through that trial, feeling the hurt, the pain, and others are telling you, oh, this is what you got to do about that, and this is what you should do, and all these things, and telling you to do what they've done or to do what the culture says to do. But you have to ask the question, Lord, what have you said that matters most in this circumstance? And yes, the culture tells me to turn right, but Lord, you've told me to go left. So will I follow? Or will I believe their voice or my voice instead of his voice? Of course, there's also a warning here to unbelievers. To say that if you never remember the Lord, if this is your life pattern always, that this is a one-way road to judgment. And the exile is in many ways just a, a warning, a caution, that if you refuse to repent, spiritual destruction will be the ultimate result. So we need to not underestimate the spiritual damage we can do if we neglect our spiritual health. And also the damage we can do to the next generation. Watch verse 19. This is an unfortunate development here in this, in this chapter. So now Manasseh's dead and his son Ammon takes over. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. Now just pause. If you've, if you've been really sharp, you remember that in the northern kingdom, short reigns equal problems, right? So that, that's where we are. Two reigns, uh, uh, two years, uh-oh. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz, and she was from Jatba. Verse 20, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the ways his father had walked. He served the idols his father had served, and he bowed in worship to them. He abandoned the Lord God of his ancestors and did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Here's the reality. In, in this little description of Ammon here, what do you have? You have not just a consequence of Manasseh's sin, but a consequence of Hezekiah's sin. Do you remember last week when we're looking at King Hezekiah and there when he was confronted about his sin at the end of his life, he thought about it and he said, I accept the, the word of the Lord and the consequences of the Lord because the judgment will come to later generations and I'll be fine during my lifetime. And Hezekiah was callous to the future generations that would come. He was cold-hearted, actually, because all he cared about was himself. And so then what happens? The next generation, his son Manasseh, king forgetful, not surprisingly, leads the nation in rebellion against God. And then his grandson, King Ammon, leads the nation further in rebellion against God and abandoned the Lord God. Why? Partially because Hezekiah was so selfish, he didn't invest spiritually in the future generations. So we see that come to fruition. We're supposed to, listen, there's a reason chapter 21 comes after chapter 20. We're supposed to connect the dots here. Now, it ended up actually ending badly for Ammon as well. Ammon's, verse 23, Ammon's servants conspired against him and put the king to death in his own house. Again, if you're paying attention, 
assassinations were the mark of the northern kingdom because of all the sin involved, but the southern kingdom had been relatively safe from that. Well, now we've got an assassination in the southern kingdom. The common people actually killed all who had conspired against King Ammon, and they made his son Josiah king in his place. The rest of the events of Ammon's reign, along with his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings, and he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and his son Josiah became king in his place. Man, those verses hurt. Because if Hezekiah hadn't been so selfish, or if Manasseh had not forgotten for almost all of his life, maybe the generation could have been spared. You see, forgetting God also leads to future failure. Forgetting God also leads to future failure. If we're going to follow King Forgetful, right, or if we're going to be self-centered and not care about future generations, then the future generations will suffer. And so there's really, I think, a clear and direct application of this to think about, wait a minute, have I forgotten God in that I'm neglecting to invest in future generations? Not just the ones related to me, right? But, but yes, the generation that God has brought into our church family. Am I, am I investing? And those that are outside, am I looking to invest in future generations to see them spiritually turn to the Lord in faith and grow? This is why passages like Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6 are so instructive. In Deuteronomy 6, short version, parents, you're called to basically be speaking about spiritual things with your kids all the time. Like, wherever you're going, there's a spiritual lesson. And so there's a lesson to be had, you know, from going to the soccer game or going to Doherty Park or going to school or whatever. There's lessons all around us spiritually that you can invest in your children. In Ephesians 6, parents are called to, especially fathers, are called to take ownership of the, of the discipleship of their children, that they lead them in the fear and instruction of the Lord and raise them in that context of fearing God and growing in that knowledge. But then you add to the fact that families are called to that, and we're big on that here, families are called to that, but also the church community then participates in that. And so we, we come around each other and support each other. And some of us have been through those, those hard days with teenagers and those difficult days with the little ones and all that. Some of us have changed a lot of diapers. Can I get an amen? You know, mostly moms. Can I get an amen? Like, you, you've been there. And so then you can actually say to the next generation as they're raising their kids, you can come alongside and encourage them to, to hey, it's, it's okay. Trust God here and look at what God will do there. And you can walk alongside them. And so we together bear this this, uh, this calling of investing in future generations. If we forget God, we will say, I will focus on my comfort, my convenience, right? My uh, preferences. And you know what? The later generation, they can figure it out for themselves. That's a lot of things. It's not helpful. It's absolute selfishness, isn't it? And in that moment, when we say, I care about myself more than investing in others, especially the next generation, who's God in that temple? It's me. I'm the one being worshipped. I'm the one that, that determines the priority. I'm the one who's, who's most important. Forgetting God leads to future failure. I wonder if you are, or if you have thought about what it looks like for you to intentionally invest in future generations. Whatever stage of life God has you in, especially those that have you know, gone into adulthood, how can you invest in future generations to, to serve and to love and to see those young people come to not just saving faith in Jesus, but to spiritual maturity in Jesus, to see them grow? There are all kinds of opportunities for that, but it starts with a heart that says, I'm willing to give 
right, of my time and energy to invest. Or we can follow the example of King Forgetful. Now here's the deal. We walk through this chapter. It's, it's a rough one, right? There's a lot of hard stuff in here, a lot of sobering warnings about where idolatry will get you. There's a statement of God bringing his judgment, right? So that's hard for us to hear. And maybe you're here and you would confess in your most kind of guarded moment, you would confess, I have forgotten the Lord. And I've seen spiritual destruction in my life in this way and in that way, in this relationship and that relationship and how I handle this and how I handle that. And so you might think, you know what, this is, I, I'm, I'm maybe more like King Forgetful than I care to admit. There's a lot here that I can resonate with. And yes, in my temple, there are a lot of different altars. It's not just an altar to the Lord, right? And so maybe you would confess that and you're feeling that burden of condemnation. Here, here's the reality. If you've forgotten God, we still have hope. Now how? Or why? Because the greater son of David didn't forget. In fact, the greater son of David did something remarkable. That greater son of David sacrificed himself so that God would forget our sin. There's a whole different dynamic here, isn't there? The true king, the one that we're looking for, the one that we've been waiting for, instead of, instead of sacrificing those whom he loves to get what he wants, he sacrifices himself to rescue those he loves. It's a totally different pattern. It's a pattern of sacrificial leadership and love. And here's the thing. Maybe you're here and you're going, yeah, but I've done a lot. Like, I've done really bad things. These things that Manasseh did, they were horrible. I mean, he he was really bad. In fact, if you read in 2 Chronicles, Manasseh was such a bad king. He was like, he had a pre-installment of exile that the Assyrians actually took Manasseh, King Forgetful. They took him and they dropped him off in Babylon. It's the weirdest thing. You read in 2 Chronicles, it's like the Assyrians came and took him and they left him in Babylon. He was like, he got like the first dose of that judgment. And he had built all the false worship sites. He had led the nation in this train wreck. He even sacrificed and murdered his own son in the worship of these false gods. And there he is in Babylon, and he's sitting in prison, in a Babylonian prison cell. And in 2 Chronicles 33, we read that sitting there in Babylon, Manasseh finally remembered the Lord. And it's remarkable. The Bible says it this way. So Manasseh came to know that the Lord is God. He repented of his sin. And shockingly, King Forgetful was forgiven. I just got to tell you something this morning. If Manasseh can be forgiven of his sin through the greater son, right? Through Jesus, the Messiah, who died in his place and rose from the dead. If Manasseh can be given for his sin, brothers and sisters, you can be forgiven of your sin. And so you might be thinking, it's bad. You don't know, Pastor Ryan, how bad it is. And I don't know. But Jesus does. And what he did is he died in your place so that you could be rescued from that forgetfulness. He died in your place so that you could be called to now new life in him, where instead of forgetting him, He's got the central place of your life. There is a son who was sacrificed who removes sin. And his name is Jesus. And so maybe you're here and you've never, you know, just speaking candidly, like you've never actually confessed your sin to the Lord and asked him to forgive you. And can I just encourage you that if if the reason you're hesitating is because you think you've done things that are too bad, 
I guarantee you, you haven't done what Manasseh's done. And so the fact is that you can be forgiven by faith in Jesus today. By simply praying and confessing your sin to the Lord and asking for forgiveness. And he doesn't forgive you because of your good works or because of your church attendance record or whatever else. He forgives you solely because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And so there's hope in that greater son of David, the king who didn't forget, right? But for believers, of course, now we realize, okay, wait a minute. We're called to this new life where Jesus has paid the price for my forgetfulness. And the temptation is going to be to go easy on it than just to say, oh, it's not that big of a deal then if I forget. And remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans. He said, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? Nope. (laughs) No way. May it never be. So if my struggle has been forgetting the Lord, and I know Jesus has died so that I can be forgiven of that idolatry and and placing other gods in in his place and, and worshiping many gods or whatever, and now I'm called to this new life, and this new life means I'm not going to forget him. I'm going to work hard to remember him. Not to earn his forgiveness, but because I already have his forgiveness. If you've forgotten God, you have real lasting hope in Jesus the Messiah. And so there's comfort there. Forgiveness for your failures. Sometimes as believers, we walk around too much with this idea of, you know, this this, uh, recognition of our guilt. And we've actually forgotten that Jesus died so that we we could be forgiven. And we're just kind of carrying it too much. It's like, you got you to let go of that. You gotta, Jesus died for it. You're not going to improve on his sacrifice for you. So let it be forgiven. Lay it at the cross and let it be done. Maybe that's you this morning, walking around with that guilt. Or maybe, maybe you're the person who, this morning, you have forgotten God to the point of just not caring about anybody else, future generation or otherwise. And I think there's an opportunity here, a moment of sober reflection where you can think, okay, Lord, what is it that you have called me to? Where am I straight up just being selfish? And we're not just talking about ministry needs, although we have those. We're talking about how you live your life, how you relate to your family, how you relate to others outside of your family. Are we living like we have forgotten? Spiritual amnesia will cost us so much. That's why in Psalm 103, Verse 2, which we read earlier, we find this encouragement, this song. My soul, bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. (laughs) You ever do that with yourself? Hey, soul, you can talk to yourself. It's biblical. It's, It's allowed, okay? Hey, soul, what's up? It's me. Um, Today, we're going to be tempted to forget. We're going to be tempted to forget what God has done. We're going to be tempted to forget who God is. There's going to be a lot of distractions at school. There's going to be a lot of distractions at work. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on in the news, soul. So let's just make sure today, soul, you with me? Don't don't lose, okay? You with me? Bless the Lord today and do not forget all his benefits. Watch out for forgetful green. It looks really good. But when we're there, only destruction results. The calling this morning is to be people who remember who God is and remember what he has done for us. Because when we forget God, we will replace him with others, and that's when we're in trouble. Would you pray with me, and we'll ask God to help us not forget his benefits. Lord, we pause this morning uh, just in consideration of 2 Kings 21, and we recognize uh, that the sin of King Manasseh was brutal. And it was the culmination of so many generations of rebellion, Lord, and and we mourn over that. But at the same time, Lord, we're not immune, that we are tempted to forget you every day. 
And so there's a warning here for us, a warning against idolatry, a warning to keep you as first and foremost in our hearts, to not clutter up the temple with other altars. Lord, we also see that in the outflowing of this, there's a reminder to spiritually be aware of and invest in others. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to forget you. Help us not to abandon you. Help us not to compromise by worshiping other gods alongside you. Lord, protect us from making ourselves God and putting us at the center of the universe. Lord, convict us of our sin in areas where we're struggling with idolatry and we've been hesitant to admit it. But Lord, may we do so not because we need to wash ourselves clean, but Lord, because you have made a way for us to be clean in Jesus. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you sacrificed yourself so that we could be forgiven. And Lord, we pray you would help us to live in light of that sacrifice, to remember the benefits that we have of new life in you, and to genuinely live in in transformation, listening to you, your voice above all others. So Lord, please help us not to forget. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.